Just an aside, I want to thank Catherine for speaking after the last service. Uh, Matt Strutzel went early. Doug Adams went last night. Who comes at 10.15? Do you remember? Jonathan Litvin will come at 10.15. Um, you know, it couldn't be more apropos, the James thing, because we talked three weeks ago, I think now, about how um, when you get in difficulties, where, when there's sifting, that there is, it both reveals your character and then develops your character, so you get a double bonus. It's, it's a little bit difficult for that. I want to encourage you, I know it's Thanksgiving week next week, but I, you know, I'll be here, uh, I believe Keith Kovac is president, will be here, his daughter was married uh, yesterday, so he's had a lot of, a lot of church cooking, and uh, I, but he'll be back, I, I believe, next week, and we'll, you know, we'll stand and talk about, um, you know, things that are, are going on here. You should be grateful for the lay leadership you've got. They've put um, not just hours and hours, days and days into trying to figure out, uh, you know, how we act as, as a community over the past month or so uh, when, when the first indications were that we had a little bit of trouble. So, you know, it's, it's not a, you know, that's a thankless task to have Catherine stand up and, you know, talk in front, or it can be thankless. On the other hand, it can be a very good task if you will listen, and um, then everybody just needs to be honest, and then your leaders need to figure out uh, what exactly it is that needs to be done. So, uh, you know, keep us in your prayers. Keep the congregation in your prayers. Uh, come back next week. There was an announcement of a voters meeting on the 14th. You should consider that on the books now. I got a, an email this morning that that's been established by the governing board, so that's a firm date. So you're going you're gonna to just, just pay attention in the next few weeks. I don't know exactly the calendar, but if you want to know what's cooking, uh, 10.15, right where you're sitting is the place to be. So just any questions about that? I don't want to front run the leaders with uh, information or, or go it alone in any sense because there's a, there's a group of uh, 20 or 30 people who are really, you know, really cooking, trying to, figure, trying to figure this thing out. So... Uh, but just if you have questions, I'd, I'd try to take them. But otherwise, mostly I want you to pay attention, say your prayers, and come back at 10.15 the next few weeks. Um, one of the great things about the leadership is they're utterly transparent. And that's a great benefit uh, when you get a lot of people, a lot of smart people in a room who have different opinions, but they just sort of put everything on the table and then think things through. That's the way a church should work. So um, remember them in your, in your prayers. Just any questions about that logistically? Anybody? <laughs> All right, let's pray and uh, let's go, okay? Grant us, O Lord, with the help of your Holy Spirit, given through your living word and your sacraments, that we may enter into your holy presence with reverence and gladness and render service that's always acceptable to you through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to do a couple of things here today. First, I'm going to send these around. Catherine, wherever you are, somehow the bag for money didn't come back. Betty, would you, you want to sign in there and then pass that back? But if somebody gives me a bag, I will um, send it around. It goes either to Ghana or Westfield. So that's the first thing. Uh, second thing is I want to try to uh, get out of the way and, and uh, pass this to Pastor Gainig relatively quickly. We'll see how successful I am with that. Partly, uh, oh, this is yours, I'm sorry. Uh, I, my stack looks the same. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't have anything new, but uh, Young Crow and Pastor, can you help them just a little bit? Uh, if you need, this is what I handed out last week. We're just going to do the last page. Um, then I have a little riff. I just want to take care of a little business on the side. And then uh, I want to give it to Pastor King. I feel a bit bad for him because, you know, he's all teed up and ready to go. And, you know, the next few weeks are going to be absorbed by uh, 
church business. That's the way things go sometimes. So I want to try to move out of his way. So you remember where we were last week when we read the text, and you see what you saw was there's this very interesting, James describes, and it's described different ways in different places in Scripture. Uh, but I'm on page, what your page would be, 25, and I'm at point number four. Um, now, I, I'm trying my best, you know, it's not in me to, you know, sort of stick with the outline. I tend to do what's in front of me. However, pretty much everything I said last week, I think I, I sort of went point by point, so often I'll try to signal where I am. Raise your hand if you need this. Is, I only made about 60, because I know some of you have this. There's far more than you than 60 here, but Pastor Ganey has come behind. Mr. Crow has them, too. And we're on number six. We're on number six, point four. Okay? So this is number six. It's dated the 23rd of November. Hmm. That okay? Everybody okay? Should say number. We'll get you. Just stay right where you are, Betty. We love you. Do you want um, like a cappuccino and a croissant or anything? Because we can, we can get that for you too. Yes, okay. Well, we'll work on that for you. Well, if you wait for it afterwards, I'll send Chip May out to get you one at Starbucks. You stay right where you are, okay? All right, so what you saw in, what you saw in James, I'm not going to read it because I've read you a couple times. I want to read it to you a little bit later. But what you saw is a description of how it is that you fall into sin and how it destroys you. There are different descriptions of that throughout Scripture, but they bear some striking similarities. And I've always said to you, you know, I love to talk about theology, and I love to find all the nuances, and I love to see how everything plays out. But the other thing is there's a simplicity. Beyond thinking about everything, there's a simplicity that you need to come back to. Uh, and really, it's, 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 it's very simple. We love the wrong things. You know, we're created to love God, and we love the wrong, we just love the wrong things. We love ourselves more than God. We love created things more than our creator. It's a very simple thing. We get distracted and we put our time and our energy into the wrong thing. Where we are right now as a congregation, it's going to be very interesting. It's not only going to reveal us and develop us, but it actually sort of strips us down and, and really reveals for us, you know, Jesus, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. He's, there is a revelation about what you value at this time in your life together when the world is coming apart like it hasn't come apart in 100 years. So in some ways, can you be glad for that? As painful as it is, can you help the people in this congregation who have lost their jobs? Can we stand together as a community and know it's our shame if people don't have food and don't have heat you know, in our community? You know, can we do that? Can we love people and console them and help them and help them find new spots and care for them. Can we do that? Um, you very rarely in your life get stark choices like we face right now. Uh, you know, we're up to it, and we need to deliver. Uh, the sermon was brilliant this morning. So here it goes, number four. Basically what happens is sifting comes all the time. Even Jesus got sifted, right? Jesus goes into the wilderness, he gets sifted. Peter says, let's avoid the cross. Jesus gets sifted. In Gethsemane, Jesus gets sifted. On the cross, if you're the son of man, come down. Jesus gets sifted. Okay? Now you're Christians, you bear the name of Christ, you're going to get sifted too. Uh, how do you proceed? How do you keep from falling? 
The le- answer last week from Psalm 1 was keep moving. You know, keep moving toward the things that are important. Don't stop. Where there's sinful things going on, don't stop. Don't stop. Keep moving. If you stop, you'll watch. And if you watch, you'll get interested. And if you get interested, you'll sit down. And if you get sit down, you'll get engaged. And if you get engaged, you're a dead man. And that was in James. And that was also in Psalm 1. It's a very common picture in Scripture. If you look, see, touch, taste the wrong things, you're a dead man. Which is why you should welcome the Ten Commandments, for example. The Ten Commandments sent boundaries, and if you go beyond the boundaries, you're dead. That's a great kindness. That's why we insist that the Ten Commandments are gospel before they're law. It's a great kindness that God would tell you what will kill you. Now, don't touch that. Don't eat that. that. Don't look at that. Don't betray that. Okay? So I'm going to go to point six then, because I want to say, I want to finish this. I want to say one extra thing, and then I want to get out of the way. You know, what could break the cycle? The cure is in the gifts. If you have your text there, it's verse 17. Every good gift. He's just told you how you die if you're tempted. Then he gives you the cure, so the diagnosis, and then the solution. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. Okay, so the answer is in the gifts. They are good, they are beautiful, they are perfect, they are complete, and they are from God himself. God is certain you can trust what he gives. It's very important right now. You don't know, who you, you don't know what you can trust. You, know, you don't know who you can believe. But the only certain thing is Christ. Good news, Christ gives his gifts. And they are toward perfecting us. I just wondered, as Pastor Ganey preached this morning, uh, how many of you were thinking he was preaching to you works righteousness? He wasn't. He was preaching to you the Christian life. And here's, here's the answer. The word here for perfect is uh, telaios, which comes from telos, which is the end point, which is the thing you're being pushed toward. As when, when Romans 10 forces Christ was the telos of the law. He was the end point, the fulfillment. So you're being pushed toward a fulfillment. Every day, Jesus wakes up and says, what can I get out of you? How about you? What can I get out of you? That's what Jesus does every day. And he tries to push you with his gifts toward your telos, toward your perfect use. So we regularly say, how can God have the best use of you? This is just right from the text here, you see. And of course, the greatest gifts are those that come down from above. So now I'm right at the bottom of 26, and I'm going to flip the page. Don't do it. Don't err. Don't look. Don't stop. Keep moving. Always toward the gifts. I mean, as you know from the first story, Jesus won't force you to stay in Eden, but that's where he wants you to be. And he does his best to keep you. So the first thing we ever say to vicars, to every new vicar, every new intern, every new deaconess, the first thing we say is, you don't get out of trouble, you stay out of trouble. I mean, don't get addicted and then come to my office and say, what do I do? My answer is, don't get addicted. You know, don't look at pornography on your computer and get hooked by it and then come to me and say, what do I do? My answer is, turn your computer off. I mean, don't punch your wife in the nose and then come and say to me, what do I do? Don't punch her in the nose. Okay, you don't get out of trouble, you stay out of trouble. That's the first rule. 
Psalm 1, James 1, telling you exactly the same thing. How do you do that? You'll always say to me, how do you do that? And then I always say to you something like, well, there's a rhythm in the Christian life. Christ, scripture, prayer, the divine service, acts of mercy, words of witness, care of the soul, striking generosity. You've heard me say this a hundred times. Or I tell you, and again this morning in the sermon, I tell you about the habit of obedience, where that's a good thing. It's original sin that tells us that obedience is a bad thing. Original, obedience is a good thing. Obedience just means that faith. You agree with God. You do what he says. You say what he says and do, do what he does, you see. Or I say, you know, remember your baptism. Or um, come to holy absolution. Or go to the Eucharist. I sometimes feel, I will admit to you as a pastor, I sometimes feel um, as if you're Naaman and I'm the prophet. You remember the story of Naaman, he had leprosy, and then he goes to the prophet Elijah, and then they, they see, he says, what should I do? And he says, you know, go wash yourself in the river seven times. He doesn't just say you'll be cured, he says, your skin will be like that of a newborn child. And Naaman goes, you know, I traveled a long distance, and I got really good rivers back home in the Jordan, and if you've ever seen the Jordan, it's not much of a river, you know, it's about as wide as this sanctuary and about this deep <laughs> at some points. He's like, I got good rivers at home. Why would I do that? This is stupid. And then finally there's the, one, of the, one of the servants says, you know, you're, you come a long way. Why don't you just do it? You're here. You know, why don't you just give it? And of course he comes out and he's healed. Sometimes I feel like when I say to you, you know what? This is the Christian life. Remember your baptism. Christ put his name to you. He owns you. You're his slave. Confess your sins. Not more than your sins and not less. Just confess what the Ten Commandments. If you've broken one of the commandments, confess it. If not, move on. Come to the Eucharist where you get nourished with the body and blood of Christ. I was just struck this morning by, I just, as I put the host on people's tongues, I just wonder to myself, do they know that Christ who was on the cross is actually touching them? Do you actually understand that that's the physical touch of Jesus as much as when he, you know, spit on the ground and made mud and put it in somebody's eyes and that's as much physical touch for you. Be respectful of the ways that God wants to save you. He knows more about you than you do. And so um, you got this morning the Jesus prayer. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, which in classical tradition um, was taken up, especially by, in the East, as... Um, when it said pray without ceasing, the initial prescription for the Jesus prayer was to say it 10,000 times a day. And uh, the way you do that is to say it with every beat of your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or with every breath. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what happens is that the prescription is you say this over and over again. And, you know, somebody will always say, you know, for the many words they're not heard, and if that's what you're saying right now, I can't help you. I'm just telling you that if you, with every word on your lips, with every beat of your heart, you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That with every beat of your heart, you know that you're a sinner and God's merciful and he'll use you. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'll just challenge you, go to bed tonight as you breathe in and out. Say it until you fall asleep. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do that for a month. See if it changes you. Just see. People who have done it for a thousand years think it changes them. 
And I don't think any of you or I are smarter than a thousand years of church history. Just give it a try. See what happens to you. Because you can hardly sin with that, with that, with those words on your, on your, you can hardly look at pornography with those words on your lips. You can't be yelling at your kids with those words on your lips. Okay? And this isn't new. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. That's how the scriptures talk. It talks about turn and run the other way. Don't sit, don't look, don't pause. Don't, take, don't think you're strong enough to take some of it in. Go the other way. It will grasp you. And here's the insidious thing about sin. You will love it. You'll love it because it will engage your natural senses. It will engage your ego because sin always makes you feel like you're the strongest person in the world. It will flatter you and then it will possess you. And when it possesses you, you're done for. So, um, you need the antidote um, again and again and again. And I just want to finish um, this little piece then. <clears throat> Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What never changes in God? Some things in God change all the time. Like, he's got all sorts of strategies to try to grab onto you. He tries this. If that doesn't work, he tries that. You know, if a prayer doesn't work, he sends a friend. If a friend doesn't work, there's a song. If a song doesn't work, there's a job. I mean, he just, he's got all sorts. Of, what doesn't change, though, is what Pastor Ganey said in his sermon this morning. He's always for you and never against you. And he'll only be your, your enemy if you force him to be your enemy. He doesn't want to be your enemy. For crying out loud, that's why he's not coming back. I'm still hoping I don't have to preach next Sunday. I'm still hoping Ganey's right. I mean, you got like seven days, okay? <laughs> Although I start early, so if you could, like, three days. I need some time to think ahead. In case this doesn't work out. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Again, this is a Jew. This is, this is the bishop of Jerusalem. When he says first fruits of his creation, you think to yourself, boom, boom, boom. You think, you think Eden. You think Israel. You think the Messiah. You think Mary, you think Christ, you think you. And so our first fruits always has a double meaning. You're first among the creatures, little brother to the angels. And he says, this is great. You're first among the fruits. You're the first one and most rejoiced in. You're also the first to be sacrificed. Because God always takes his best back. So by way of your baptism, you are. By way of your incorporation into Christ, you become his firstborn son. Pastor Gating is going to give you more on this in a second. But you become. He looks at you and he sees Jesus. But Jesus is the firstborn sacrifice. So Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Okay. And now we're all the way back where we started. Question about any of that? All right. Yes, please. Right. The firstborn was considered the best. So, for example, the ten plagues. Why did they kill the firstborn in all, the Egypt, all of Egypt? He killed the best. 
upon. The firstborn classically is the way he talks about his best. So your first fruits, your first harvest, always comes back to the priest. Your first money is always given back to the church. Your firstborn son is the son that inherits everything, right? So the first one is, the Lord says, that one's mine, right? So why do you take your son up to the temple, Jesus of the temple? Firstborn son needs to be redeemed. Either redeem him or kill him, you have a choice, right? So that's what I mean. I just mean, I don't mean it in any moral sense. I mean it in God's way of defining. He takes his first thing. He gives it to you, and you give it back. And then when he gives it to you, he trusts you and says, John, you're trustworthy. And when you give it back, you say, Lord, you're trustworthy. And then he says, John, you are trustworthy. And you say, Lord, you are trustworthy. And that's the back and forth of how you live. Right? Got it? Um, I'm going to take five minutes for a little aside. Um, because I've heard, I probably had this said to me five times in the last week. So that means it's emerged someplace um, as a catchphrase. And I want to uh, drive a stake through its heart. Because I think it's insidious. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> I've heard people say to me, several times in the last week or two, perception is reality. All right, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the punchline first. That is utterly anti-Christ to say that. Okay? Perception is not reality. I understand that perception has some limited use. Like if, you're in, if you sell Coca-Cola, all you want to do is present the perception that Coke is the best possible thing but you care nothing for the people who buy it. You don't care if they're serial killers or good Mormons. You just want to sell them Coke. And you want to create the perception that everything's going to be okay. You want to create their reality. Or let me give you uh, another example. We use that sometimes to describe what people do. We're like, he was such an idiot, and I don't know what he'd do. Why he would do something like that, so out of character. And then we sort of shrug and say, well, perception is reality. What we're trying to do there is explain why somebody did something. But the problem is, is if you chase that argument very far, if you chase it past customer service. Um, I read this great review of a restaurant in the New York Times Magazine last week. where they, it's very, It was one of the most successful new restaurants in New York, and the guy said, our motto is exactly the opposite of the customer is always right. I'm thinking, man, that's a church. <laughs> that's our motto, too. <laughs> the customer is not always right. In fact, the customer is never right. <laughs> the Lord is right. The customer is, all, our, our motto is exactly the opposite of the, cust the customer is always right, okay? So here's the thing, and I think if you think this through a little bit, you'll see why this is wrong. In the church, as a rule, perception is perception, reality is reality. What we call in the church, when people say perception is reality, what the church calls that is a lie. Let's be real clear about that. That's what the church means by, that's what scripture means by lying. When you confuse perception with reality. Perception is perception, reality is reality. I don't know if you know this, this is just a way of recasting, uh, so I lay the trap for you now. Uh, uh, this is just a way of recasting the old thing you got in philosophy one when you were in college. So I ask you, if a tree falls in the forest and, and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? Raise your hand if you think it makes a sound. Okay. Raise your hand if you think it doesn't. Okay, good. 
the first people are objective people, the second people are, the first people are objective reality people, the second people are subjective reality people. So if you say it doesn't make a sound, that just means you didn't hear it and you're the center of the universe. But here's the thing, it did make a sound. Do you know why it made a sound? Because God heard it. You know, that's not going to go very far with your philosophy, professor. I mean, I get that. In fact, uh, what, this is what I love. I love this. We got a, oh, the pastor's got a full-page email from one of our students. And let me just tell you out loud, we love this. We love freshmen who go to college who write us. Uh, you know, a philosophy professor is, is trying to run rings around one of our kids and freshmen at college. And it's like, can I talk to you during the break? I'm like, talk to me? This is like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> I mean, bring everything he's got. I'll, I'll load up his calendar so full for the rest of the semester, he, he'll lose his sabbatical. This will be easy, okay? So here's the thing. If a tree falls in the forest, it vibrates the ground and God hears it. That's objective reality. If you're not there and you don't hear it, you know, so what? The world doesn't revolve around you. The second one is perception is reality. Um, you should know that's just really a form of relativism. Which means if it didn't happen to me, it didn't happen. Which means there's no morality and no ethics, and choices just boil down to whether or not you like chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream. So the Christian life is all about calling perception, perception, and reality, reality. And we know what's perception and we know what's reality because God reveals himself. If it matches God, it's reality. And if it doesn't, it's not. This is strikingly important for you to understand this. Otherwise, and I'm just going to get the final blow here, if everybody's perception is reality, I'm going to tell you what happens. It's what's happened to universities for the last hundred years. Everybody's feelings are internalized, and then whoever suffers the most is most privileged, or who can ever manipulate the most becomes the winner. Or here's how it really plays out. The strong kill the weak. When perception is reality... It never, what should happen is, you should say, that's my perception. I'll say, well, that's my perception that we call it a draw. That never happens. What happens is, when people say perception is reality, what they really mean is, my perception is reality, and your perception is not reality. And your perception doesn't matter. That's what happens. And the strong always then dominate the weak, and that destroys community. That's antichrist. Okay? So it's extraordinarily important for you to understand this. The church runs by an objective standard. We know what right and wrong is. Perception is not reality. That's a valuable phrase when you want to know how somebody feels or why they might have acted the way they do. They perceived it this way or this is how they feel. Or I need to get them into this mood if they're going to sign this contract in a bad economy. But in the church, that is anathema. Okay? So I just, I just, want, to be care- I just want you to know that. That's why there's an eighth commandment. Don't lie. You, you spend your time matching your reality to Christ's reality. Because here's the thing. Let me just read this to you. You tell me if, this is, if, you can, if you can say perception is reality after I read this to you. James, a servant, a slave of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12, 12 tribes in dispersion. Greetings. Okay. Count it all joy, my brothers, when... They throw you to the lions when they skin you alive, when they take away your house, when they chase you out of your ancestral city, when they they kick you out of the temple, when um, when when they close down your house churches, when they steal your livelihood, when they hurt your children, when they martyr your bishop. The perception is that is that stinks. It hurts. People die. And yet James says, 
That's just perception. That's not reality. The reality is joy. Why? Because at the end of the day, Christ has his way. Okay, this is an exercise in perception and reality. So just let that percolate in. I don't want to take too many questions about that because, you know, you indulge my speech and I actually, um, I want to let Pastor Ganey give a little bit of just the next thing because I'm afraid we're going to be disrupted for a couple of weeks now. And, well, that's unfortunate because um, what you need most is to be in the scriptures at this time. You know, the reality is this is when you're here. Um, and frankly, the people who have the greatest stakeholders are the ones who sort of stick around. And, I mean, I've always said to you, this is the real meeting. This is the real meeting where you figure out the scriptures and apply it to life. Um, this is where the heavy lifting gets done. You need a text. It's not just, you know, this is, this is the real meeting. So um, well, maybe I'll just let that settle and not ask for questions. Are you ready to go? That's right. <laughs> That is the proper. That is the proper. That is the proper response. You could have mine. Yes, you can. That's the proper response. You want to pick that up? I'll hand. Oops. Don't swear. Uh, should be coming around here. Better buckle up. Hold on to your seats. Thanks for all the time. <laughs> See what we can get done here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't, as they say on Sports Center, you can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. So, all right. Well, here's just, uh, you know, I was gone for one week, but, uh, you know, where we've been so far, at least as, as far as I know, is uh, talking about who Paul was and then who James was, and that's the whole week on wherever, you know, all hell broke loose, because we talked about the perpetual virginity of Mary, in trying to defend the fact that James was a cousin of Jesus. Um, But, you know, I left town and it all worked out. So we talked about those two, so James will properly refer to him as the cousin of Jesus, uh, and Paul the apostle who once persecuted the Christians. But then, you know, brilliantly, Pastor Bruzek went on and talked about how their lives have begun to inform our own lives. Uh, especially with the notion of what it means to be a slave. And that's been very helpful. And we've kind of, you know, we spent a lot of time with James. We didn't spend so much time with Galatians. The beginning of Galatians, I would just encourage you to go back. You know, we talked about the beginning section, but go back and just read, you know, the first chapter and a half. A lot of it is, is details. I went here. I talked to these people. I did this. I did that. We could talk about that, but, um, you know, we don't have that much time, actually. So, uh, we're going to be, you know, it's going to be springtime before we know it. So why don't we move on to Galatians chapter 2, right there at verse 15, and really then, as you see at point one on your outline, get to the heart of the matter, which is incorporation and participation, or, or how you're brought into the flesh of Christ, and how you actually then can have some fun within the flesh of Christ. That's what this is all about, and that's where we're pushing you. But we needed all the background data, who they were, and how their lives have formed our own lives. But uh, let's move on then to incorporation and participation. So if you just flip your Bibles back to Galatians chapter 2, if you look at verse 15, I think it, I don't know what the chapter heading is in yours, but 15 is kind of a natural break there. And look also then at your outline. I, I think it's very important when you talk about 
how you got into the body of Christ to first remember who you were intended to be and what things were like before the fall. I think that's very... And of course, you can't know everything, but you can know some things. Uh, And you see there, remembering where we've been. First and foremost, you have to remember that it's Jesus who does the verbs. And we've talked, you know, we talk about this all the time, but even at creation, from the very beginning, the first, utter, you know, the first uttered words come from Jesus. Jesus speaks, Jesus creates, and of course then Jesus redeems, and it's all his doing. Or as you saw the reading intros today, the Lord does the verbs. Old Testament, epistle, the Lord does the verbs. Gospel, you reside in the body of Jesus, so now you do the verbs. That right there is incorporation and participation. Okay? But all the way back at creation, Jesus did the verbs and worded this creation into existence through his eight-sided speech. And this, you know, we owe this to Eugene Peterson who brought out the notion that the Lord speaks eight times at creation. Eight times he says, let there be. And then, you know, well, because it's my turn to talk, I'll naturally go to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary then says, you remember, after everything's, you know, the cosmos has been destroyed through the fall, the Lord had said eight times, let there be, which means that speaking, let there be, will never come to an end. Eight is the number that doesn't end. You remember then the Virgin Mary, what does she say when the angel speaks into her ear the word of creation? You will bear a son. She says, let it be unto me which sounds strikingly similar. I mean, it's an echo of the word of creation. In receiving the creative word, then, creation bore the image of the one who created it. It bore the very goodness of the Trinity itself. And that is almost, you know, unfathomable to us. We can't can't quite imagine what that was like. But what we do know is that things were right in every sense of the word. Right creation, right relationship, right worship. Orthodoxy is not about right doctrine. It's not about we have the book of Concord and you don't. That is not what it means to be orthodox. What it means to be orthodox, first and foremost, is right worship, doxology, praise, right praise. So if you have the liturgy, you're on track to being an orthodox congregation. Right worship, right life, right love, right marriage, right family, right mind and every other right that you may or may not be able to imagine. But with one betraying bite, and this is you know, from Bruzek's uh, Monday Thursday sermon, the first sin is not pride, it's actually betrayal. I actually wrote that in a paper I gave two weeks ago. I did cite you, by the way. They didn't agree, but, you know, what are you going to do? I said, yeah, I said, go talk to Bruzek. With one betraying bite, and the key there is Adam and Eve suddenly do the verbs. They take the cosmos into their own hands, and when they do, things go terribly wrong, and this fallen fallen cosmos was in need of cosmic healing. But how? This is very important. The way back to Eden, which is obviously where we all want to go, is not simply the way of retracing our steps. You cannot fix what went wrong. You can't. We are children of Adam and Eve and cannot undo what's been done. And I've always, I've always loved this little, this little citation from Newhouse here, and I think you even used this book before I was here, uh, Death on a Friday Afternoon. But there's this great section where he says, there is no returning to that paradise that was. The way to the tree of life is blocked. Lost is that innocence so bright with love. Now we need faith. And as we'll see in just a minute, it may not be the faith you're thinking about. 
For the truth is not transparent. Now we need hope, for we know that we are not what we are meant to be. The way to paradise is not the way of return. It is the way restored. It is restored by the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. A new Adam, Jesus Christ, a new Eve, Mary, the mother of the faithful, a new tree of life, the tree of the cross, all is restored. And then, of course, as Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So here's the hope you have. The Eden you're going back to is not the same Eden that you know in Genesis 1. It's better than that. It's better than that. And as the church fathers said, the Eucharist is Eden plus. So if you, can read the, if you can read the account of Genesis and say, wow, I'd love to go back, go to the Eucharist, and you have, more in Gen- you have more at the Eucharist than you lost in Genesis 1. Or as the Father said, you gained more in Jesus than you lost in Adam. Which is why, it, <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier this morning, which is why at some points they say, O Felix culpa, O happy fault, O necessary sin of Adam, that gained for us so great a Redeemer. That was the way the Father spoke. And of course you'd say, necessary sin of Adam. But the emphasis was not on the sin of Adam, but on the greatness of our redemption that comes by way of the incarnation of Jesus. So you can't retrace your steps, but a new Adam can. Page 2. One who is faithful where our first Adam was not. One who can rectify this horrible situation and make wrongs right. So then St. Paul, if, you, if you've got the attached sheet, it should have just two verses there from Galatians chapter 2. Verse 15 is a bit of a throwaway verse, but verse 16, I, I tried to lay it out there for you in a chiasm, which means there's a central key to the entire verse, and that's right there in the middle in bold. But St. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles. He's lining himself up there with St. Peter and with all the other teachers. Yet... Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Okay? But you see there on your, on your outline then, page 2, there's something going on with this word justified. I think we can wrap this up in about four minutes. We still okay? It could be four hours, but... Yeah, well... The word there for justify, you see there's a, there's a problem there in rendering that verb to justify, as you have in your text. And then the noun, of course, as righteousness. This is linguistically impossible for St. Paul. The, word, uh, the verb to justify has a very legal connotation, and the noun righteousness has a very moral connotation. But that is not what St. Paul is talking about. He's first and foremost talking about Jesus. It has a Christological connotation. So the solution from Martin, who we've both used a little bit in prepping for this, and it's a very good one. You don't have to agree, but just think about it for a few days. To render the verb to rectify and the noun rectification. And of course, if you see there, this is quite prevalent in St. Paul's epistles, especially when you read it in Christological terms, as opposed to legal or moral. The key to this text is not that you are somehow legally different than you were before. This is the old Lutheran notion that you stand before the judge, and regardless of what kind of damn sinner you were, he says, oh, look at that, you know, the jury voted, you're all okay. That is not really what St. Paul is saying here. 
Instead, he's saying, there are a ton of wrongs in this cosmos, and Jesus is about to make them right. And those wrongs you can't make right on your own. With that in mind, what St. Paul is announcing, as you see, is that God is making right what has gone terribly wrong. The question, of course, is how is he going to do that? This is where it gets interesting. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And you all go home and say, isn't that great? If I just believe, wrongs will be made right. But actually, in the Greek, the first thing... the. The first believing is not done by you, but by Jesus. And, I, and you say this to people. There, you know, all of you are very pious folks and probably say my faith is strong and all of that good stuff. But you get someone who comes into your office who says, I don't think I believe in Jesus anymore. Uh, and what you don't say to them is, well, just have stronger faith. It's not about you. It's not about me. What you say to them is, what's more important, that you believe in Jesus or that Jesus believes in you? And when they can begin to say that Jesus believes in me, because that's the way that Jesus does the verbs, suddenly there's freedom and rejoicing in that. And that's what St. Paul is trying to say here. It's not through your faith in Jesus Christ, but remember, Jesus does the verbs. This is, in the Greek, if any of you know any Greek, this is a subjective genitive, meaning it's Jesus' genitive before it's your genitive. And all the genitive means is, someone possesses the faith. So who possesses faith, you or Jesus? Jesus does, because Jesus does the verbs. It is Christ's faith before it's your faith. It should read, through the faith of Jesus Christ. A person, therefore, is rectified or righted by the faith of Jesus. You remember the Adam and Christ comparison. The only reason you have the temptation in the Gospels is because where Adam falls, Jesus stands strong. That's the point of the temptation. Or where Adam was faithless, Jesus has faith. Which is why then he dies in the place of the skull. One skull. Adam's skull. The church has always said that Adam is buried in that location. So where where Adam sinned, Jesus reverses the curse in his own death. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by the faith of Christ. Or... We believe only because Christ first believed. We believe only because Christ first believed, and we want in on his believing. We want in on his faith, which comes by way of gift. Or at holy baptism, someone's going to be baptized at 1115. It's not that they're just given the name. It's not that they're just given water and the word. It's that they are given the faith of Jesus. Jesus, who is utterly faithful, that is then transposed into them by way of their forehead, by way of water in the name. They suddenly have the faith of Christ. And all of that locates the rectifying act of God, his ability to make wrongs right in the flesh of Jesus Christ, in his body, which is really where we're going to be going in just a few verses or a few weeks. Um, Because that's where we need to be. To be in the flesh of Jesus, that's incorporation. To play within the flesh of Jesus, that's participation. And that's what it's all about. Okay? Makes sense? It's all about Jesus. It's not about you. Let him do the verbs, and it will all be well. Any questions? All right. Anything? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.